So greetings this morning. May the presence of, presence of the Lord be with us. Something that catches my attention every time on this subject is um, there's one phrase, and that is redeeming the time. Redeeming the time so that when um, hardships come or um, hard times befall upon us so that we may be equipped, that we may be equipped with the grace of God to deal with it. If we don't gather, there's nothing to harvest. And especially when it comes to helping our brothers and sisters or our neighbor, the one thing that God has to provide for us, for our neighbor, for our brothers and sisters, is us. This is where comfort comes from. And um, it, it's, it's very good to, to seek the face of the Lord in, in times when it doesn't seem so hard. So it's good to see you all here. Welcome again, all those that are visiting here. It's a blessing to have you here. And we just pray that the Lord will be with us here and, uh, and bless our time here this morning and uh, get our hearts ready for the Word of God to, to germinate and to bring forth fruit. So, we're talking more and more here on, um, on baptism. Uh, as you all know, here in the church, there's quite a few young people that have a desire to move on in the Lord and praise the Lord for that. And I want to share on, on revolving around that subject on baptism. And I see the need more and more of, uh, of discipleship, of, of, of teaching the pure word of God. And especially we're in a world that has many voices, many voices concerning Christianity. Is it through podcasts, YouTube, internet? We hear all kinds of voices, but it's important to choose and recognize our real battles. And hopefully um, today we can start heading down more and more that road. Um, here, especially here as a church, but also hopefully we can be blessed as a as believers that have started that journey. Is it twenty years ago, ten years ago, a few years ago? Hopefully we can be blessed. Uh, so before we do that, I would like to rise to our feet this morning before the Lord. Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this gathering. We thank you, Lord God, that you have made it possible. We thank you, Lord God, that we can look into your word and, and to let the Holy Spirit lead and direct our ways here. And Lord, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you will move, that your word may be spoken and that our hearts are ready that we may see the time that needs to be redeemed in our life, Lord, and that you're looking for men and women that radically choose to obey you and to follow you. And Lord, we pray that even in our hearts this morning that we can, 
that we can decipher truth from, from folly and, and choose to follow truth in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that your presence may be with us, that there's no room for the enemy in here to distract or to bring down, but, Lord, that you may build here this morning. And we pray, Lord, that your grace may sustain, your grace may, may lead us even more into, into more of you and to know more of you. We pray that our hearts are ready to receive, our hearts are ready to grow more in you, Lord. So we pray again for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe something that we know and that we recognize is that the things that are stressed in, in Christianity lack um, some authenticity in the Lord. And if you analyze it, most of the time it comes from a from pet doctrines, from religion, from agendas, and, and we miss the true power of the gospel. And uh, I want to speak today on the critical need for faithful, cross-caring obedience to the Lord, and to recognize that it's a need, that it need, that we need it. To live a wholeheartedly devoted life for Christ. And uh, before I go into my message, I want to read an excerpt from an email that a brother sent me earlier this week. I guess it's last week. Sunday is the first day of the week. And it's a good introduction I want to speak on this morning. And this writing is, is, from, is a clipping from a book, I think. And it starts with Jude 1. Verse 5, it says here, I will therefore put in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not. Jude 1, 5. Okay, it goes on to say, it is commonly taught in evangelical churches that once the Lord saves us out of Egypt. I think this was written by an evangelical, so I'm not... It is commonly taught in evangelical churches that once the Lord saves us out of Egypt, so to speak, we never can be destroyed. If such is the case, why did Jude make this statement? Christian teachers sometimes seem to ignore the warning of the New Testament concerning the need to fight the fight of faith. The kingdom of God is an actual kingdom and will be located on actual earth. It is not a mystical position in God in the spirit realm. A royal priesthood is being created that will judge and bless the nations of safe peoples of the earth. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, does not consist of untransformed believers who are saved by grace. As we ordinarily employ the term, if that were the case, the new Jerusalem would be filled with sinning people who are righteous only in the sense that God has declared them righteous, they would not be righteous except by the Lord's declaration. They would still lie, steal, use profanity, seek their own gain, gossip, criticize, break laws, and practice every other ungodly behavior. The holy city is the holy city. Every member of the new Jerusalem began in sin. 
and then was made alive and brought up to the throne of God. After that, each member patiently followed the Holy Spirit through a painful wilderness experience until the image of God had been formed in his or her personality. And until we as a believer can see and recognize our going out of Egypt, our suffering in the wilderness, and, this, and experiencing the conforming of the image of Christ in our personality, in our character, we're not on that journey. And it could be that we are of the mindset that I somehow have this name tag. I am a believer. I am okay. And I can just live my life, just do a few good things here and there. And I should be okay. But I think that's a lie. It's a lie that, that the church so often partakes of. Because if Christ is not continuously doing his working, his transforming work in us, we would fall right back into the flesh. We are not sure what the new heaven and the new earth will look like. I've, I've never gone into that. I emphasize more on being faithful now. Christ said, when the Son of Man will return, will he find faith on the earth? So we can spend hours and theorizing what it will be like. We can take scripture here and there and make it our own little doctrine. But we do know he's looking for righteous people. In uh, the epistle of John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. A continuously continuous purification is going on in our life. So... We are hearing all kinds of ideas and ways and uh, pet doctrines of what to do, what not to do. Spiritual talks on liberty in Christ, are you free in Christ, born again, and it goes on and on and on. But why at the same time do we, do we see so little growth and progress in the church as a whole? And we also can be struggling most of our lives in finding victory and direction in Christ. Like, no life, no reflection, a clear reflection of what Christ is doing in our lives. And I believe it is because deep down there's this subtle heresy unconsciously praising that the Lord saved me and I'm okay. There's no, there is no desire for holiness. No purification work is going on. 
Or I can simply fail to see and believe what God desires for a people and that he desires a separated people. We see no urgency in the eternal values, on the eternal value of our lives. So I want to emphasize, I want to speak on this this morning, how God desires to be in fellowship with his children who seek who seek their completeness in him. And that can only come through a sanctifying work of God as we grow from faith to faith and how much we're willing to give and surrender. That is to the pricking of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So one way to gain understanding for us to see from our hearts is to look unto Jesus. Who the Bible names as the author and the finisher of our faith. In Jesus, we find completeness. We find the answer. The answers to all our questions. I want to start in taking a few verses out of John 1. <clears throat> Gospel of John. Um, verses 14 and 17. John writes about Jesus, how he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he said, we beheld his glory. In verse 14, we beheld the Son of God. As in saying, we, 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 we looked, we learned, we saw the Godhead walking among us. And here's what he says. And the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full, not mixed. Full of grace and truth. Come there, come, completeness there. Full. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word became flesh, flesh and dwelt among us. He said we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. What really blesses me, as it always does if you look to Jesus for answers, there was no half commitment, no half surrender, no hesitancy, but a complete surrender to the will of his Father. As verse 16 puts it, puts it fullness and out of it we received. Out of that fullness, we are receiving. If it wasn't for that, he couldn't have done what he did. But he was without sin, and in him was there was nothing that was lacking or wanting. That is Christ, the author, the finisher of our faith. Now when we look at us, back to us again, what does that say about us? If he invites us to be partakers of eternal life, 
what does here require of us? As he rightfully so can do that. He, he requires. What does it require of us? And I know we sing and hear preachings of he died in our stead. The work is finished. And we hear, we hear these things. It's by grace alone. And you know, there's a lot of truth to that. In fact, it is true. But what makes it true? One makes it true that it is finished. One makes it true that no matter what I do, I will not be able to attain it. One makes it true is that no matter what we do to atone for our sins, there is nothing that we can do that would satisfy the Father. Except the sinless sacrifice of Christ. He is the only one that is worthy. And he is the only one that will stand before the judge, before God, where the sins, our sins are satisfied. He's satisfied, it says in Isaiah. But does that mean that we are off the hook, like we, we've said it, we, we came to the Lord, now we're free? No, he is the only one that could stand in the, in the gap between man and God. He is the only one worthy to be the great reconciler. So because of what is done for us, we are able to come onto the throne of grace and find mercy in time of need. So that also has us looking to Christ, the author of our salvation, and how we journey here on this earth and what he taught us. So once he's given us that, what did Jesus say about following him? Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now that doesn't sound like uh, casual Western Christianity. What that sounds like is a life dedicated and totally invested. And I've come to find in our life it is very similar. Just as Jesus came, and in him was found all the fullness of the Godhead body, as in him was found the completeness in what he was ordained to do, so it is in our life. I've come to see that we will find no fulfillment or true sense of purpose in Christ until we learn to wholly and completely surrender every area, every area of our life. Whatever we are holding on to has to come under the Lordship of Christ. Is it property? Is it possessions that we hold on to? Every ounce of ownership has to come under Christ. Is it sin? Is it past hurts? Is it bitterness? Unforgiveness? Whatever it may be, what we hold on to, there will be no growth in Christ. Especially as young believers. 
And I don't mean young people. I mean young believers. There's a lot of times we, there's rooms that we do not want to enter into. Because we think we'll forget. But if we are not dealing and if we're not surrendering that very room, that very area in our life, if we're not open with it before the Lord, and whatever that may be to find victory in it, it will plague us. It will haunt us. It will restrict growth. It's like the children of Israel in the promised land. Yes, it's called rest. And in Christ we find rest. But the enemies had to be subdued or annihilated. So it is in our life. In Christ, he seeks completeness. Christ was full of grace and truth. There was not a small corner for this and maybe a small corner for that. Completeness. Until we have full peace, and I believe the Holy Spirit will move and prick at our hearts until there's peace. We will know until there's peace. Until that comes, we will find no rest. Because once we get tired, the enemy rises up. When Israel put down their, their guards, the enemy rose up and plundered. Until we have effectively dealt with every area in Christ, there is little to no growth. How do we sense growth? How does Jesus discern growth? With fruit. Where there is life, it produces more life. Life comes forth in our words, in our actions. Whatever we have been do, will reproduce. So what are the reasons? Usually there are reasons why we don't surrender or give our lives to Christ. Sometimes it's hurt. Um, we probably feel, well, who wants to hear about my hurt? Or maybe we feel we don't trust God to heal our hurt. Sometimes it's bitterness. We're not touching that because I was hurt so much that I am not going there and I'm not resurrecting that hurt. But all that translates to is bitterness. What bitterness does, it destroys us. What bitterness turns out to is unforgiveness. If we harbor unforgiveness, there's no forgiveness for us. Jesus said that. It could be pride. Um, I believe one of, one of the biggest um, obstacles in life of finding completeness in Christ is pride. Because we think we have it figured out. Humility will admit. Humility will see more in Christ. We'll see the life of Christ in our brothers and sisters. Simply, or it could be simply choosing to love sin. 
or this world or love this world more than Christ and put on the action, which in this translates to as just a religious front. No matter how it looks. We like to look at Pharisees and look for Pharisaical counterparts in our everyday, everyday life and point out Pharisee, Phariseeism. But we can so easily be wrapped up in a Pharisaical lifestyle that I leave this alone, I leave this alone, and I put up the front of facade. We can love, and we, we fall in love even what the church produces. But we in reality are far from being partakers of the church. And I put being with God's people, <clears throat> being one in action, in heart and mind with God's people, I put that in correlation with being a believer. If that is absent in our, in our lives, then there's something drastically wrong. The body of Christ is a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, this is what he's given us to represent, to identify with. Following Christ is finding our place in the kingdom of God, which is most often, if not always, expressed in a local body. A good example. Do you want a good example? It's found in Acts. Just as the church was starting to form. Acts 2, 3. A lot of things happened. There was revival. Everything was shaking. God visited his people and confirmed them through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The church was growing daily. People sold houses and land to be part of the church, to be part of what's happened here, of, of God doing something here in, here in earth. The birth of the church. They met in homes and broke bread and fellowshiped. It's clear that something was in the making that attracted people, that prompted a desire to be part of it. Dear it, it, just, it just pulled and tugged at their hearts. They saw it. They want to be part of it. They liked what it produced. The church today functions just the same. If God's people are faithful, there's something there that makes unbelievers thirsty. There are many good intentions in the church and the fruit that is being produced and can be produced is admired. It's talked about a lot of, of the things of God, but when it comes to giving, what it takes is where many, many fall short. Because we're not totally convinced in our hearts. There's too many other things that grab our interests. Most of the time, our spiritual struggles and anxieties in life revolve around the fact that we don't surrender what God is asking for in our lives. So this account here in Acts is usually looked at with reactions or defense of a lifestyle 
rather than seeing the depths of how the Holy Spirit moved in the early church. And we have this message <clears throat> to get the nature of what we're dealing with once, once we come into the realm of God. I mean, you can follow along. I think it's interesting enough. Uh, Acts 4, verse 32. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought their proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having lent, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So obviously the Holy Spirit was doing there something among the believers of, a, of bringing them together um, in hard possession, everything. They were caring for one another. And one of the things that I noticed in these, pas in these passages the possessions they sold is more in parts. I used to think they sold everything. But it's more in parts. And we see, and we can see how the Holy Spirit deals with us individually to whatever need it is that we find that we need to be conforming to his likeness. Whatever he needs from us, we give. It says of Barnabas here, having lend. He sold it. And um, so reading on, I want you to pay attention. We're going to go to chapter 5. I want you to pay attention and see two levels of hindrances in our Christian walk. One will cripple us and drag us down. The other will destroy us. One will simply hinder us drag us down, maybe eventually we'll take its toll, but the other will destroy us. The first one is uh, areas in our life that we're not ready. We're not ready to surrender yet. We want the blessings of being in Christ and the church, but we're not ready to surrender. And if that is going on in our lives, we will be dragging on, dragging on. There's nothing much going on. There's no fruit. It's just, there's no growth. Because, and it's, it's to our demise. The second one is deception. Once we start deceiving and lying about our struggles is when we cross a line. I believe this is where judgment starts. This is, this is where it's bad. So Acts 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias <clears throat> with Sapphira, his wife, 
sold a possession. So they didn't sell their possession. They sold a possession. They could have been honest about it. But in verse 2, it says, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. A part of a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, the impression was, I'm giving all. But instead, it was just a part. I'm giving, this is what I am. Maybe I have, still have this, but I am bringing all this. I want to be part of the church. Yet coming in deception and lying. What if you would have waited till you had enough faith to see what the Lord is actually doing? I think it would have been a different outcome. But anyways, in verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, it was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why you... Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. He said, you have lied. Why did you even conceive this thing? It's not like it just happened spontaneously. He conceived this thing in his heart, and he tried to come to the church, to God's people, with deception, with lie, and giving just half. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Not a lie. And then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? How is it that you have agreed to test, to lie to the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church, upon all who heard these things. See, the problem is men have continuously used this scripture to manipulate people into a certain mold or system. Which is said, there is so much power and so much word in these scriptures of trying to deceive ourselves and to walk in darkness. No matter where we're at, God wants truth. In order for us to grow as children of God, he wants all he wants everything. And while we can do that, there is no growth. But like I said, once the hesitancy turns into deception, is when there's judgment. This is when judgment comes. You see, when God sees men, that are faithful in seeking his face. 
And I, I'm referring more and more to a local body. Wholeheartedly seek to minister Christ with their lives as a body. I strongly believe he pays attention. It's not a certain mold or certain idea or certain ideology. It's God's in people, it's God's people inspired by the Holy Spirit and by faith obeying him is when we grab his attention. That has always, always been his heart. He set himself through the tabernacle right in the midst of the children of Israel and was looking for a people. He was looking for a holy people that will, that will bring life, light, hope to the world. And when he sees that, today, we grab his attention. In Matthew 18, that after Jesus teaches his disciples about restoring and dealing with sinning brothers, right in that context, it's obviously talking with dealings in the church amongst his disciples, he finishes off with this statement in Matthew 18. Verse 19, again I say to you, if two or if, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You can see here, he, he's honoring where two or three are gathered in his name. And that's not just, now we're going to gather in Jesus' name. This is from the intentions of our hearts, wholeheartedly. He came to establish a kingdom, and he wants us all the way. And mysteriously enough, that is also when he is sanctifying his people. He's doing his sanctifying work through that process in a local body. So in conclusion... What hinders us from surrendering our lives? Is it faith? Is it trust? Because soon and very soon, if we ever will, but we will find out, and many believers know that already, that there is no other way to find peace and contentment unless we wholeheartedly submit our lives to Him. If we leave unvisited rooms, unvisited Issues, unvisited, sin. We will be of the most miserable. Because ultimately, in order to find peace and to walk a victorious life, we need to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And if there's areas in our life that drags us down, it will hinder us. It will hinder us from hearing the voice of God. We will resort to following our flesh, therefore producing death. It's a life of faith, knowing what he has promised that he will deliver. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please him. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a, reward, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So could it be that I don't trust that God can heal? Is it our past or present grievances? Or we have not yet learned to trust him with our future plans. We not yet to put our trust in him who, who knows our future 500 years from now or five years from now. But let's take the promise of God, the promise of the word in this context here. In Romans 8, in Romans 8 where Paul teaches about sonship and the leading of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 28, he was talking here about sonship, the Holy Spirit leading, guiding us, and he said in verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We don't have to keep a certain part for ourselves for an insurance plan. Just in case Christ will not work out for us. We come just as we are honest and in true surrender to find healing, forgiveness, and everlasting life. We don't keep hearts for ourselves for a rainy day. We walk by faith. We give all. This is where we find fulfillment and victory in Christ. In John 7, 37 and 38, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Have you ever thought about that? Drink usually refers to taking it all in. Have you ever heard that term, drinking the Kool-Aid? Or... The choice of words is interesting. If anyone thirsts, if there are undealt issues in your life, it will create thirstiness. It will create a thirst. But he said, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Filling our cup with Christ will bring completeness that will overflow in blessings or, to, or life to people around us. And now in closing, one of my favorite passages in the Bible it paints a picture to that point of dynamics of relationship with God. And I know there's also, when Jesus spoke about a fruit, about the seed, he spoke about the cares of the world. And there, there's, there's many things that can draw us away from Christ. But my particular burden this morning is when we come to him, especially afresh, and we're not willing to surrender. We're not willing to go there and clean this part of our house. We're not willing to, to, to get rid of this idol. We're not willing to give up this or that that's dear to my heart because of, I don't know what, instead of surrendering to Christ. This is what I'm focusing on. Hence, speaking to young believers who are setting out on their journey, who, who, who anticipate of crossing the Jordan into the promised land. In Malachi, I think we all know these verses, chapter 3, verse 8. 
he's asking a question. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way, in what, what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. As in saying, you have not given what is mine. And you're suffering for it. You go by my name, and you have not given me, given that which you should. And in verse 10, the Lord speaks to us. When, when we're at that point where he speaks to our hearts, and he, he, he pricks at our hearts, and he knows that we have not surrendered, or we have not given. And he puts out this plea in verse 10. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Bring everything. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will be no, that there will not be room enough to receive it. This is the God who we serve. That there will be, will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. And he starts fighting for us. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. It is my heart in prayer this morning that we seek the Lord at such a level. So that we are redeeming the time. And uh, all you young people that, um, that seek to, to go on and identify with Christ in baptism. That's what it takes. So, amen. I want to leave with that. We all know our own hearts, the struggles, the hidden rooms, whatever it is. God said, bring it. Try me. See if you won't be blessed. So blessings, maybe so. Amen.